Well, good evening. I want to welcome you guys to Wednesday night journey, and it's good to be back from a great family camp that we had uh, last week. We had well over 100 people out on uh, throughout the camp and the, and all the different things that are going on, and super excited to be able to see what God's going to be doing. Check the website or get signed up. Let me pray for tonight as uh, we go before the Lord and, and worship. We're going to have a time of communion and studying God's Word. Philippians 4, we're going to finish the book tonight. And uh, just a great message that God's given us in His Word. So let me pray. God, we want to pause this, this time in midweek. And Lord, we would ask that, that You would meet us here by the power of Your Spirit and change our hearts. Lord, there's a, a lot of things going on. There's quite a few people that are sick. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that You would be with them in their illnesses and the struggles. Some have chronic diseases. Lord, I pray for those that... Uh, that have had surgeries even today, that, God, you would bring healing to them. Lord, I praise you and thank you for the work that you did at Camp Out and all the families and the fellowship, keeping everybody safe. And we pray for those that were in the car accident on the way up. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you spared their lives. Now, may you heal them in the recovery and mend their bones. More importantly, mend their hearts and their spirit. And it, was a, it was a traumatic event. We want to surrender our lives to you even now and and, and, and just sit before your throne. Be in your presence. And may the peace of God that passes all understanding guard our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.
God, you are the most beautiful. You are wonderful. You are wonderful. Oh, God, there is no one more wonderful. You are wonderful. God, you are the most wonderful. You are glorious. You are glorious.
coming into this place tonight and just filling these walls with the beautiful music that we could just bring to you, God. We're all blessed. We are blessed to be here. We're blessed to breathe today, God. And it's, it's only a fraction of what we can comprehend, God. We, we are overwhelmed by your just presence and majesty, God. Just help us to take in a fraction tonight as Pastor Kerry prepares to deliver your message. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, find your way over to Philippians 4. Just a reminder, too, we are continuing. uh, If you've been considering going to Israel with us, March of 2024, um, that date's kind of creeping up. I was super excited. We're actually going to connect with a church out of Bonners Ferry, Idaho, where um, we visit. And there's there's five different people that are going to join us on that Israel trip. So it's not too late to sign up. Um, if you're considering going, I would encourage you to, to do that. Uh, it's going to be a great trip. Tonight we're going we're gonna to be in Philippi. Taking a look at the last chapter of Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. And the Philippian church has been somewhat of a model church. When you take a look at the whole Macedonian Asian ministry and Corinth and, and all of the things that are going on. But... Even though you have the healthiest church, can the healthiest church still have problems? Absolutely it can. Why? Because you've got people involved. And whenever there's people involved, there's probably going to be problems, especially personality problems. And Paul has spent the earlier portions of this 
this letter, and he's a master teacher. He spent the earlier portions of this letter teaching doctrinally how to have unity. To bring out the theology of unity in chapters 2 and 3, to be able to, to address it really, to bring those out. And he, he, he did what was very smart. He laid down the theological basis, basis in chapter 2 of why we should be united together, how we're united together in the body of Christ and all of that. And then here in chapter 4, he's going to address the people that are having a problem with unity. How, how to address the, the, the ones that are creating the conflict. Conflict resolution is an essential skill within the church body. And with any family situation, we need to know how to navigate conflict. Conflict is tough. And, and so we need to know the right way. It's not a matter of if you get into conflict, you will. How you handle it, though, is imperative to be able to bring about a resolution and in a redemptive way. And one of the greatest dangers in evangelism is the body that's trying to evangelize the gospel to be in itself in conflict. People are going to look at you and they're going to go, why should I believe your message if you guys can't get along within this? And so the world is watching the church even today, and the infighting that's going on, and the challenges, and that challenges the validity of the gospel message. If the gospel message is transformative, and it is, then why is it not transforming you in how you react to one another? Which I think is a valid question. And so we want to take a look at chapter 4, more or less as a diagnostic. As Paul would walk through Really, the, having taught the, the reason why we're unified, walk through how to deal with conflict, how to work through conflict and the issues of conflict that are there. So picking up in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So he's transitioning, and whenever you see the word therefore, in the beginning of a sentence. Remember, chapter numbers and verses are not anointed. But if, it's, if you see it, you've got to say, well, what is it there for? Which means you have to go back to the verses above it. And we would go back to verses 20 to 21. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory, and by the exertion of power that he has to even, note, subject all things to him. What does Paul say? What is it therefore? Therefore, based on the sovereignty of Jesus and the ultimate heavenly power of which our citizenship is derived, do you realize you all are citizens of heaven? We are displaced citizens right now. We really belong in heaven. That's, that's where we really belong. I was speaking with somebody that I'd had a visit with yesterday in the hospital. And as I prayed with this individual, and it's a, it's a pretty uh, uh, serious surgery. She's going to have uh, a couple of valves replaced, and they can't do open heart. And she was describing to me they're going to they're gonna do this procedure. And the doc says, you know, it's, there's a good chance that you may not come out of it, that, you, you, that you're going to die on the table. She says, well, what are my options? And the doc says, you don't have an option. This is it. 
We have to do the surgery, otherwise you're just going to continue to deteriorate, and we're not even sure we can get you all the way through that. She was quite scared, and, and I got to pray with her. But then I told her, and, 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 and the Lord gave me this. It wasn't something I came up with. I'm not smart enough for this. But I got to thinking, and, and I told her, I said, you know, you realize that tomorrow or Thursday when you have that surgery, you're going to experience a miracle. You will experience a miracle. She says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's either going to be a miracle that you get through the surgery, or it's going to be a miracle that you're going to be transformed into the presence of God with a whole new body. But you're going to get a miracle. And that has encouraged her. Because she realized that God is in charge and is going to bring that. Our citizenship is in heaven. If our citizenship is in heaven, and it is, and Jesus is sovereign over all things and brings everything subject under him, and he does and will, therefore, how should we live? How should we live in this world of conflict? What should we do now? And so he starts out in addressing the, the readers of this letter, my beloved brethren. So he's writing to other believers that are in Philippi, a church that he, he, he loves dearly and connects to them on that spiritual relation, whom I agaped. It's this kind of love that brings two people together. And I long for to see, keep in mind, Paul is in prison in Rome. He can't go and see them, so he's writing this letter to them. And I long to see you and have this this fellowship. Notice how he describes them. And it's unique to the church of Philippi. My joy and my crown. His joy and his crown. Why? Because this is a church that was doing it right. And he's encouraging him. And, and, he, and it wasn't a church that was bringing him sorrow. Even though there was conflict in the church, it wasn't bringing him sorrow. He knew it could be corrected. And so it's in this. And, and he knew that the church loved him. And he loved the church question. When you correct somebody in love, what is the goal of the correction? Isn't it to have them be better? Isn't it to bring peace and unity? And so Paul, is he's addressing them, he says, I love you and I want to correct you within this. I want to bring peace and unity within this. But, the, but he encourages them. He says, those whom I love... Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. In other words, hold your ground. Why? That word stand firm literally means to hold your ground because the enemy is attacking. So before he addresses the individuals, he needs to remind them that they're in spiritual warfare. Is conflict a tool that Satan will use to destroy the church? Absolutely he will. Is conflict a tool that he will use to destroy families and marriages? Absolutely. So the first thing that he needs to do is make this general statement that you need to stand firm. But notice the word in, I-N. It's a dative. It, it means location. Where do you stand firm in? He says it there. It's in what? The Lord. Don't stand firm in your own opinion. Don't stand firm in your own pride or your own arrogance. You stand firm in the Lord. Why does he say stand firm in the Lord? He says stand firm in the Lord because in order to be able to, to deal with conflict and to bring a resolution, 
everyone has to have the same foundation. You have to address conflict from the same position. So if I'm in conflict with you, and you're in conflict with me, in order for us to bring a resolution, we both have to come together from a position of being, what? In the Lord. Not in the world, not in ourself, not in our flesh. If one person is in their flesh and the other person's in the Lord, is the conflict going to be resolved? No, it's not. Because they're coming at it from different positions. So we come together in the Lord within this. And it's a present active imperative. It's an order. It means do this now and continue to do this. Stand firm in the Lord. Face the, the, the heresy and the spiritual opposition head on and don't be moved. In, in fact, the, the term was used to describe Roman armies that were under attack. One of the greatest things that the Roman armies were capable of doing was standing firm and not being moved. They would hold their ground. And they would hold their ground against the enemy. And the church is called to stand firm that way in the Lord. Is the church going to be attacked? Yes. Should we be moved or swayed by public opinion? No, we shouldn't. We should stand firm and stand our ground in the Lord. And in all of these things, we should stand firm and stand against the disunity, the sin, the false teaching, and, and in order to accomplish the will of God. Ephesians chapter 6, 13 and 14 says this, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm. Christians today have, have fallen back into a very weakened state. We acquiesce our position for the sake of attempting to love and attempting to accept people in their position. Can, can you be loving and still stand firm in truth? Absolutely you can. So the first thing to deal with this conflict and the first thing to be able to, 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 to become a healthier church is stand firm. The next thing he says, having stand, stood firm taking your position, the next goal in conflict resolution is to be unified. Notice in verses 2 and 3. He says, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you, now this is a third person, also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So what does Paul do? He says, okay, church, stand firm. Great. Now, church standing firm on truth, I'm urging and calling out Eutyche and Syndica to live in harmony together. And I'm calling out a mediator, an unnamed mediator, and he calls him my yoke fellow, to help these gals out. But we think about living in harmony. What does harmony mean? Well, literally in, the, in, in Greek, it means to think the same way or the sa have the same mind. It's not that you lose your identity, but to think the same way. So, we're in conflict and we are coming at it from our position in the Lord. Then how do we address our conflict from the position in the Lord? 
okay, I'm going to first think about my position in light of my relationship with God. And you're thinking about your position in relationship with God. Now we can have a common conversation. And he says to live in harmony. And, and again, you don't lose your individuality. In a marriage conflict, you don't lose your individuality as an individual. The wife doesn't, and the husband, they don't lose who they are. But yet God joins them together to be one. Two individuals that are united together to be one in covenant relationship within this. And, and the church should be the same mind towards one another. Romans twelve sixteen says this. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the Lord. Do not be wise, no, in your own estimation. Why do we get angry at somebody? Usually because we feel we've been wronged. Sometimes justified we've been wronged. But we've got to be careful in how we approach this. Entitlement is a really big thing in our culture today. And everybody feels entitled to do whatever they say and say whatever they want to do and all of these other things. But really, the mind of Christ is, is to be other-minded. The mind of Christ is to sacrifice yourself for the other, to love the other, as Christ has loved you. The lack of the unity in the church is basically a disagreement, and it's a way of thinking that splits the church. You know, churches, and this church has been through a couple of church splits. Why do churches split? Why do they, they have this? Well, it's because it's a disagreement and people start taking sides. And taking sides is not healthy. Do you know that you can disagree with somebody correctly? Yeah. You can disagree with them agreeably. You can say, I really don't agree with your position, but we're still brothers and sisters in the Lord. I don't agree with, with what you're thinking but I still love you. And, and so we're going to agree to disagree on this topic. On the non-essentials, you can do that. On the essentials, you can't do that. And in everything, as, as we're told, we should show grace and love. And so what we should do is we should agree each other. And so then what is the foundation? What is the non-negotiable in, in, in dealing with conflict? Here's the non-negotiable. You must always, always agree in things pertaining to the Lord. Always. So, well, Carrie, I don't always agree things pertaining to the Lord. If you are standing firm in the Lord, your foundation in the Lord, you're sovereign to God, yes, you will agree and should agree to everything that pertains to those that are in the Lord. Why? Because you're all part of the same body with Christ as the head. Now, should, does that mean that we have to agree on the color of carpet in the church building? No. That's preference. That's not in the Lord. Do we have to agree what, what kind of coffee we're going to buy for Sunday morning? No. Just don't buy Folgers, but that's okay. But, you know, we can, we can disagree on those things. And we can disagree agreeably with, with those things. Do we have to agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, that's in the Lord. Do we have to agree 
That if you confess your sins with your mouth and believe in your heart that you will be saved. Yes, because that's in the Lord. That's a doctrinal essential within that. So we need to be able to agree with each other in the Lord. The problem is our disagreements come up outside of being in the Lord. And I would challenge you that, that if you want to settle something, settle it in the Lord. Settle it in the Lord. Well, how do you do that? First, you pray. Then what do you do next? Pray. Then what do you do next? Pray. Then what do you do next? Examine yourself. Then what do you do next? Pray. Then what do you do next? You approach in love and you pray together. But after much prayer and much self-examination and asking God, am I right? Am I wrong? Is this condition in the Lord that I need to battle? Or is it a non-essential? We're told that these, the dispute was between these two women and it was so great that the church of Philippi wrote to Paul who was in prison and said, Paul, we've got a conflict and we can't figure it out. Help. And Paul's having to write back to the church from prison. We're not told what the dispute was other than these two women couldn't get along. They appeared to be leaders or prominent women within the church. So much so that they were creating a division. Some commentators think that they were hosting or deaconesses in home fellowships. And that was creating a separation of these things. So then I got to thinking, well, what are some of the most common reasons why people have an argument and conflict within the church? And there's a number of them. Pride, ego and self-centeredness. Or... Spiritual and emotional immaturity. Or refusing to change an inflexibility. Or abuse of power. Or church politics. Or lack of biblical authority. Or just a personality issue. It could be a whole gamut of things. And, and so we're not told what was going on, but it was significant enough it was attacking the unity of the church. And so he addresses, in fact, it says that he pleaded with them. He says, I plead or urge you to, I plead, I plead to Syneche that they would be in harmony together in Christ and resolve their situation within Christ because the body of Christ is not divided. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10-13 says this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there is no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What was going on in the church of Corinth? Well, they had partisanism. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, and this and that and the other. And they were following men, and Paul says, stop it. Christ is not divided, and I didn't die on the cross for you. You need to stop it. So what was the problem with the church of Corinth? Well, we know what the problem with the church of Corinth is and why they had conflict. They were spiritually immature. And so the spiritually immature will enter into conflict and partisanism and control and pride and all of these things. 
And so Paul addresses them and basically says, look it, strive, work at living in harmony. The next thing he says, when you're in conflict, find a mediator, a like-minded mediator. Matthew 18 tells us that, it, that you're to go privately to the person and try to deal with the situation. And if you can't deal with it, then get two or three unbiased witnesses to judge between the two of you. Paul gives this unnamed person, he, he, he says basically, my true companion. And he says to this in this letter, and, and some people think that the guy knew who he was. We don't know. We're not given his name. But whoever it was, it was somebody that was designated by Paul that says, Paul, Paul says to them, you need to mediate between these two women. Have you ever tried to be a mediator between two women that are angry at each other? Give me two junior hires, please. <clears throat> it doesn't usually work well. I feel sorry for this guy, but he says, look, at the, you're, you're my fellow yokeman. But what you should do is you find a mediator in Christ. So if person one is in Christ and person two is in Christ, and you have the mediator who is in Christ, same foundation, shouldn't they all come to the same conclusion eventually? Yes, because they're trying to put it and look at it through the mind of Christ, which is essential. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about being unified in the truth that's in Christ. That's what's important. And for Christians, we need to understand that we need a Christian mediator. Unity in Christ. I've been part of a number of different Christian organizations. And it always scares me when an organization says, well, we can't get along, so we're going to go to a lawyer. Christians should not go get lawyers. You can go get an arbitrator. You can get somebody that, that is going to be the mediator between you. But you go to the world, why, why should you go to the world and let the world judge? You shouldn't, because you're not in Christ. You're not going to come up with the same conclusion that, that God would have in a spirit-led Christian. And notice Paul says, not only is this person, this, this true companion, my yoke person, one that will help, but he who has been in ministry with me, and shared in my struggles, knows me well, hence being yoked with me, along with Clement and other workers that are there. So this is a person of good reputation. Who should I find? Someone of good reputation that will mediate the same way that I mediate. Because Paul can't be there. So he says, I want this guy, and everybody can vouch for his decision that, that is there. We really don't know who Clement was. Some people say he was the Bishop of Rome. There's not really good evidence with that. But he was definitely a key leader. So what should we do? Seek unity, find a mediator. And then what? Verses 4 through 9, be joyful and be full of peace. Notice what he says this. He transitions out of the correction peace. And in order to bring unity back and, and strengthen them, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord's near. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is a good repute, if there's any excellence, and there is, and if anything is worth of praise, and it is, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What is Paul trying to restore in this letter to the church of Philippi? Joy and peace. Why did they lose joy and peace? Or why are they losing joy and peace? Because of conflict. So what is he saying? Deal with the conflict, resolve the conflict, and return to joy. And seek peace. And he starts out with rejoicing in the Lord. It's another command imperative. He commands rejoice where? Dative. In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. When we choose to find our joy in the Lord, everything else starts diminishing. When we start to find our joy in, in the presence of the Lord, in this redemptive work, one of the things about finding your joy in the Lord is so amazing is when your joy is grounded in the Lord, nothing can rob you of that joy. But if your joy is found in anything but the Lord, your joy is going to be stolen. So you, you, if you're living a joyless life, what should you do? Focus on the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. Well, what am I joyful over? Well, let's see. There might be a few things. I'm not going to spend eternity in hell. My sins are forgiven. What else? God loves me unconditionally. God knows my name. He's given me His Spirit. He's given me every provision for life. You can walk around like Eeyore all you want. Woe is me. I don't have any this. The joyless Christian is not focused of, on their spirituality in the Lord. And it robs us. The joyless Christian is one who is trying to find joy in that which always changes, which is called circumstances. Do you realize your circumstances will change all the time? All the time. Who doesn't change? The Lord. If your joy is in the Lord, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. But if you're trying to find joy in circumstances, you're going to be sorely, sorely mistaken and sad. And, and it's just going to be horrible. Circumstances will change. They're going to rob you of your joy. You know, you think about that. I, I'm going to have great joy when I buy that brand new truck. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, if I get the truck, my joy is going to be full. And you get the truck, and you go to Safeway, and someone rams the shopping cart into it, or worse yet, somebody backs into it and breaks your taillight. What happened? I lost my joy. Why? Because my truck got broke. But if your joy is in the Lord, nothing in the Lord can ever be stolen. 
Nothing in the Lord could ever be changed. We can have joy in the Lord, regardless of the situations. Why? Because of the unconditional love that God has for us. Paul says, rejoice always. Where? In the Lord. That's why I tell people when they start falling into states of depression, what should you do? Turn on worship music and worship the Lord. Get out Psalms and start reading Psalms. Why? So you can focus your mind on the things above. Read God's Word. Focus on that. Count your blessings that the Lord has given to you instead of focusing on what the world is taking from you. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I love Paul because he thinks he's working with junior hires, and so he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say what? Rejoice. He has to say it twice. If it's repeated in the Bible, it must be important. And... Not just rejoice, but be full of peace. Rejoice in the Lord and be full of peace within this. We want to be in that place. Let your gentle spirit or your peace be known to all men. The Lord is near and be anxious for nothing. And in everything by prayer, supplication, let your requests known. It's the gentleness. What does that mean? It means to be able to be gracious and kind and bear up with people in the wrong. If somebody treats you harshly, they should not be able to rob you of your joy. Why? Because their treatment of you does not affect your relationship with God. We focus on them and we be courteous to those. And we say to them, bless your heart. Why? I love this because he says, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is present. The Lord is watching. He's watching how you treat people and how people treat you and he knows what's going on. So don't, don't feel like you even have to defend yourself. Now, Paul moves into another part of this letter that I think is important. And it's about anxiety. Anybody here ever have anxiety attacks? Problems with anxiety and anxiousness? Stress? All the time. Notice what he says here. Be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious in the literal. It's a prohibitive statement. It means don't be anxious. No, do not be anxious. Stop being anxious. No more being anxious. It's that strong of a, of a sentence. It's a prohibitive means you have to consciously reject anxiety. If you consider how Jesus taught about anxiety on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't be anxious. Matthew 6, 33 and 34 says, Seek first the kingdom of his God, kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. He said, well, Carrie, I'm, I'm really anxious about this. I'm really anxious about that. Wait a minute. What was the first thing that he said? Stand firm where? In Christ. If your location is in Christ, if you're in Christ, why should you be anxious over anything? Christ hasn't changed. Last time I checked, he didn't fall off the throne. He's there. The Lord is near. Why should I not be anxious? Because Jesus is right here. But you don't see what's going on. He does. Because he's right here. So should I be anxious over it? No. I shouldn't be anxious. Because he's present. Paul prohibits the anxiety 
and provides the solution. He says, okay, great. He tells me, don't be anxious. But what do I do when I am anxious? You know what you do? Same thing when you're dealing with conflict. Pray. You should pray. He says, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's not telling you to suck it up, buttercup. What he's telling you to do is pray. Take it to God. When you get anxious, don't hold it in. Pray it out. Pray out that anxiety. Pray out that trouble. Pray out that request. Pray out loud. If you really want to, if you're really anxious, go down to the waterfront and pray out loud, really loud. People might look at you like you've lost it, but that's okay. Talk to God. Have a conversation with Him. The problem with anxiety is we try to keep it in and we don't pray. And, and here's the beauty about prayer. When you pray out your anxiety to God, what you're in a sense doing is saying, God, this is my problem, but I'm making it your problem. I'm giving it to you. No, I'm not going to try to do this. It's you. And, and, and what he's doing is, is saying, yeah, I want to hear it. Because now that we're on the same page in Christ, when I work, you're going to see me work. When we pray it out, we're connecting our heart, and then God can do that work in the anxiety. And He may not fix it right now. He may not fix it next month. He may not fix it in a year. He may not fix it at all. But there is something that comes, and it's that peace. Prayer offers that, that problem. And notice He says that we're to pray... With thanksgiving and not complaining. Oh, how does that work? With thanksgiving. God, I thank you that I can come before you and I can give this to you. God, I thank you that you already have the solution for this situation. God, I thank you that you're going to make provision for, for this thing that is driving me nuts. Taking it before God with a prayer and a thankful heart. Not a, God, I'm giving you this problem and you really don't care about me. You never hear around me. No, that's not complaining. How would you want to be approached? Out of relationship, a grateful heart. One of the things that can, that can cure anxiety is counting your blessings. God is, the, is, is given us the ability to be grateful. To be positive. But if you're always negative, if you're, if you're always in that negative condition, God is going to say, look, you're not ready to receive what I have for you. And God's going to provide His answer. When we pray, as He says here, the solution, in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to, to God... That's what we do. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, or literally garrison, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I promise you, God's Word does not fail. If you do verse 6, you will get verse 7. If you go to God with a, a thankful heart and, and push away the anxiety, but just take it to God in prayer. 
And you let this request be made known, not in a complaining way. God promises to answer you with His peace. With His peace. And it's a peace that He has. It's a divine peace. John 14.27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Note, do not prohibitive, let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Get control of your emotions. Deliver what's on your heart to me. And I will cover you with my peace. What kind of peace? Incomprehensible. It, it literally is a peace that transcends understanding. The Greek word is hupokereso. Hupokereso is this, this kind of... It, it, it means that it is a peace that, that is incomprehensible in human understanding. When we come to God with our anxieties and we come to Him with prayer and we bring Him these things and we fully surrender with a grateful heart, God, I thank You that You are hearing me right now as I pour my heart out to You. God says, I promise I will give You a peace that will blow Your mind. A peace in this situation. And it will be protective peace. It will guard your heart and your mind. And it's a peace that keeps the anxiety out. It's a peace that will keep you from slipping. It's a spiritual peace of Christ. Keep in mind, where are you? In Christ. For these gals, they could have gotten together and they could have said, okay, we, we don't know what to do, but we're going to pray together in Christ. And... Syndicate, and you, I'm anxious, and you're anxious, we're anxious. Okay, let's pray. Let's go to God. And let's seek unity and let's seek peace. When you're anxious, seek peace. That's what we need to do. We need to be in that place. And then, there's a practice. What is the practice? If you look at this, Paul focuses on this, on this practice. Verse 8, he says, Finally, brother... Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good or repute. If there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. He does two things. He says here, here is the solution for your anxiety. Prayer. With thanksgiving. And when you come to God, His peace will come upon you. Okay, great. That's the solution. Then Paul says there's two parts to the next step. One... Keep controlling your mind. How do you keep controlling your mind? Initially, you say, I don't want to, I'm pushing out the anxiety, I'm pushing out the stress, I'm pushing out, but how do I keep controlling my mind? Verse 8. Verse 8 is a, a internal, it's a mental, emotional, and spiritual practice. He uses two phrases. Think on these things and do these things. Verse 8 is a think on these things. The true, the honorable, the right, the pure, the lovely, the good, the excellence. He says, dwell on these things. Why? Because if I dwell on these things that are true, and I'm so focused on the true, can the lies get in? No. Control your thoughts. Think on these things. Dwell on these things. These are all ethical, moral, and emotional considerations that control your mind. And when Satan comes in and tries to give you anxiety and says, that's not true, call him a liar. 
Because God is true, His Word is true. Whatsoever things are right. Now, how do I know what's true and what's right? I can tell you. Real simple. Study God's Word. Whatever's true. And if it lines up with God's Word, it's true. If it doesn't line up with God's Word, it's a lie. When the emotions come in, ask yourself, is this truth or lie? Well, how do I know? Check it out in God's Word. And then dwell on these things. What should I do? Find Scripture and start memorizing it. Put the Word of God in your heart. Then the peace of God will reside in you. Notice the second thing. He says in practicing these things, verse 9. Notice, the things that you've learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Okay. How do I get peace? Well, I resist it. I refuse to be anxious. I drive this stake in the head. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to make sure everything I'm thinking is in Christ, whatever's true and what's right. I'm going to control my mind. And then physically, I'm going to put into action the things that I've learned. Notice he says, the things that you've learned and received and heard from me and seen. It's a practical list of actions. It would be like, when you're anxious, you ask yourself, what would Paul do? What would Jesus do? Find somebody that is doing it right and model them. Paul says, I'm a model for you. And you do what they do. You, you put into action the things that you learn. Paul says, I've taught you everything. One of the most frustrating things that I have as a teacher and as a pastor is when I teach somebody a skill set, I teach them the Word and I teach them what they should do, and they don't put into mind the things that I've taught them, and they don't do the things that I tell them to do, and then they come back and they say, well, I'm not fixed. Well, did you do what I told you to do? No, I didn't do it. Can't help you. I can't help you. If you're not going to do the things that you're told to do, if you're not going to transform your mind and have your mind renewed by the Word of God, and if you're not practicing righteousness, and then you're still struggling with sin, I can't help you. Paul says you've got to put action into it. And notice the result. The benefit. The last thing that he says in this section in verse 9. Notice. And the peace of God will be what? With you. You want peace? You've got to follow the pattern that Paul sets. This whole conversation came as a result of disunity within the church. Why? Because two people had gone off into their own mind in their own little world and they got started arguing with each other. So much so it was creating conflict. And he says, you've got to bring it back together. Eutyche, Seneca, this is what you have to do individually. And to have that peace that is there corporately. The cure for chaos ultimately, as Paul would say, bring everything under subjection of Christ. He uses this phrase, in Christ. You want to remove the chaos? Get your life back in the middle and in Christ. I could fix the whole world really simply if they would all be in Christ and subject themselves to being in Christ. But the problem is we have this human condition called sin and rebellion. And we push away these things. And 
We don't want to put in the work. We need to change that. So Paul wants Philippi to become a better church. He wants us to become a better church within this. And what happens then after the peace? How do I maintain that? Once I get to a place of peace, what do I need to do? How do I maintain that peace? Paul goes on in this next section. He says, be thankful. Be thankful. Notice in verses 10 to 20, what he does is he shows them, he says, I'm really thankful for you. Why? Because of God's provision. He goes into a section on finances, and there's not a lot taught in the Bible this clear on finances. But he says in verses 10 to 20, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content with whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with the humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. And in everything and circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, whom, through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit for which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma of acceptance, sacrifice, and well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. Note, in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul basically now says here, here's a model. I'm not anxious for anything. An example of me not being anxious for anything is my financial needs. Paul was in a Roman prison and responsible for paying for being in prison. You imagine what it would be like if we put people in jail today and say, you, you being in prison is going to cost you. It's your bill. Would that change things? Maybe. They'd have to pay their own way. Well, Paul had to pay his own way. And he was thankful for his finances from the Philippian church because they loved him and they were gracious to them. And they were blessing him and supporting him both in the mission field and now in prison. And he was rejoicing over their gifts because he loved them. The Philippians had sent out money to him, originally was in the field, and then they sent out another gift with Epaphroditus within this. That showed love. And, and Paul was teaching the Philippians how to be blessed in giving. Do you know you can be blessed in giving? In fact, giving is God's way of being able to bless you. Paul is talking about how to, how to be blessed in this giving and having joy with this. And he says, you had a concern for me originally, and then I was concerned that you forgot about me, and then the money came, and now I know you really love me within this. And then he says, and it's not really out of want. Paul says, I've learned not to be anxious, but, in, but to be in that place of being content in whatever situation he's in. 
Paul would write later to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9, he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain. Remember, in Christ. And when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food or covering and these things, we will be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare for many foolish, harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Paul's point is that circumstances didn't rob him of his joy. He was okay. And if he didn't have enough money, he was okay. And he had times in his life when he had more than enough money. And he was okay. Why? Because his joy wasn't based on circumstances. It was based on the Lord. And his joy here in this context was the fact that the Philippian church was providing for his needs. Not so much that he needed it, but it showed love. Giving was a means of of sharing that love. Paul learned to be flexible, whether in prosperity or poverty. It didn't matter. Question. Can you say that you are unaffected by your circumstances? Or do circumstances affect you? It really shows where we're at spiritually. It's really a test of faith. If God loves you, and He does, and if He's provided for everything that pertains to life and godliness, and He has, then whatever set of circumstances God deems necessary for you right now, be okay with that. Be okay with that. Because ultimately, the things don't matter. I love the fact that Paul almost quotes People that say, you know, you, you, you can't put a U-Haul behind a hearse. You didn't bring anything into the world and you can't take it out. Years ago, and I, I'm sure I've shared this, but it's always amazing to me in California, there was a guy that had a Corvette. And it was, if I remember right, it was like a 79 Stingray or something. It was just, just amazing. And he loved his Corvette. He loved it immensely. So much so that he had the lawyers draw up all of the permits and get everything done for him to be buried in it. And I remember seeing the video of them digging the hole and hooking it to a crane and putting him inside that Corvette and lowering it down into the hole. And I thought, oh my goodness. You can't take it with you. But he didn't want anybody else to have his Corvette. He loved his Corvette. He wanted to be buried in his Corvette. And I thought, man. We get so wrapped around the axle about stuff. It doesn't matter. You know, a fire will take away in 30 minutes what it will take you to gain in 30 years. It doesn't take much. If you go down to... The, the, the southeast where hurricanes and tornadoes exist. How fast does, is, is something destroyed? And you think about all these homes along Malibu in Southern California. And they build their houses on the cliffs. And they've got these multi-million dollar mansions. And then the earth gives way. And what does it do? Falls into rubble. Your stuff doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And so if things don't matter, what really does matter? Eternity. Eternal rewards. I should be anxious about the things that are here, but trust in the Lord within this. As Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 25, 26, For this reason I say to you, 
Don't be worried about your life as to what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not this life more than food and the body more than clothes? He answers, yes. Look at the birds of the air that they don't sow, they don't reap, they gather in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than that than they? And the answer is yes. I can tell you this. I saw a cow elk last week that was not worried about trying to get to Costco to go get food. You know how I know that? Because that cow elk was walking around all the camp and eating off people's picnic tables. He didn't care. He was safe. Couldn't hunt me. Couldn't, couldn't shoot me. I'm there. And, and eating off the tables. Why? And, and if God cares for them, how much more does He care for us? Paul's point is we need to learn to be dependent upon God. Now, it's not, it's not living recklessly. Notice he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, so many times this verse is taken out of context. He says, I can do all things through what? Through Christ who strengthens me. All what things? Jump off a cliff? I can jump off a cliff and fly. Why? Because I believe Christ is going to strengthen me. Is that what he's saying? No. I can learn sufficiency in whatever circumstance because it's going to be Christ that strengthens me in those circumstances. I can overcome any adversity in Christ because it's Christ who strengthens me and makes provision for me. Paul knew the power of provision. He knew the power of God through all circumstances. He knows that the Lord is standing by his side and he knows that the Philippian church was standing by his side and financially supporting him. And that privilege of giving. And it's a blessing. Notice what he says. He says, you gave to me within this. The church, when nobody else was giving, you gave to me. And even the Thessalonians gave a gift because you were giving to me within this. There is a blessing in giving. The ability to be able to give and to enjoy that. And, and again, when you give, you're partnering in ministry. In verses 15 to 20, Paul says, You yourselves know that the first preaching of the gospel after Macedonia, no church shared with me but you. Why? Because you were financing the ministry. Serving together. And notice what he says. And you were giving and receiving. Now, that's an interesting statement. What does he mean by that? You were giving and receiving. Were they sending money to Paul? Yeah. But what were they receiving? Teaching. Here's the principle that is found within ministry. As you are blessed in one area, you can bless others. As the Lord provides for you, you can make provision for other people. Others were receiving the Word of God and not giving. Paul was giving the Word of God to the church of Philippi and they were responding in giving to further the ministry. Should the congregation financially support the ministry of the gospel? The answer is absolutely yes. As you receive, you give. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. The elders rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. 
I do this full time. I don't have time to go get another job. And so some of the money that is donated helps support myself and the other pastors and the staff and the missionaries. Why? Because it's our job to prepare the meal for you to you for you to receive within that. And what would happen if the church was stopped giving? I'd have to go get a job. Wouldn't be able to teach. Wouldn't be able to do these things. It's a biblical precedent. And it started all the way back with the tribe of Levi. Those that labor over the word should receive from the blessings from that word and so ministry is a partnership. Not just myself, but the missionaries that are out in full-time ministry. Giving is also an investment. Notice what Paul says. It'll be attributed to your account. Do you realize that God has given you stewardship over resources? And it is your job to manage those resources for the kingdom of God. That includes giving. That includes giving to the local church and to missions to support the kingdom of God and work. And Paul says you were part of that. It's interesting because it's, it, it, you're not supporting me. You're supporting the ministry that I also work in with you. It's a partnership that's going on. Paul would address this letter, this concept later in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. He says, Now this I say, who who's, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And each one must do as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it's written, he who scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for the food will supply multiple for your seed and sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving of God. Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, and it's interesting because in the Corinthian church, he never took any money from them. The whole Corinthian ministry was supplied by Philippi. He didn't go to any money. He made it a point not to take any money from the church of Corinth because they were so immature they wouldn't get it. And so he, he made sure that, that he would teach them about giving before receiving. And within that, God reciprocates to the giver. And we think about, well, how should we give? Well, we should give from the heart. Consider Jesus' commentary on the widow that gave. In Mark twelve forty one to 44, it says this, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a widow, poor widow came in, put in two small copper points, which amounted to a cent. And he called his disciples and he said, Hey, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she put it out of her poverty and put in all she owned that she had to live on. It's not the quantity of the gift. It's the heart behind the gift. And Philippi loved the ministry. They loved the gospel. And they knew that they could invest in Paul to get the gospel out. But there are some people that don't give. God will bless those that give with the right heart. But those that don't give, God calls them out. Malachi 3, 8-10 says this, 
Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. What was happening? They were holding back on the tithe and robbing God. I know people that, that don't do that. And, and it's funny. People, some people, will, they won't tithe. They won't give to the church. And they never have enough. And I know other people that have dedicated amount. And again, it doesn't matter the amount. It's the consistency of the heart. But there will be those people that give and they always have enough. God will bless. Paul was blessed. And so he says in his passage here, he says, it's not that I have want. It's not that I have need. But I want you to be blessed in partnering in the Gospel. We are a very blessed church. We have a church here that gives. Does everybody give at the same rate? I don't know. Because there's only one person in the whole congregation and the whole church that actually know who gives what. Nobody else knows. I never see it. The pastors never see it. The elders never see it. All we look at is numbers. We set the budget accordingly. But I can tell you this. When we declare a need... This congregation gives and they provide. And that's a blessing to partner with a congregation that sees the value in ministry. Paul ends this, this narrative and this letter with, with a doxology. And he says, Now to our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, glory forever and ever. And then he closes with greeting. Greet everyone in Christ, the brethren who are with me. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's house. Remember, he's in Rome. He's talking about the servants that serve in, the, in Caesar's uh, domain. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you in spirit. A lot we cover tonight. We covered a lot in this book. We've talked about anxiety. We've talked about unity. We've talked about the need to be able to partner in ministry and to resolve conflict. I would encourage you, we did cover a lot. If you go back and you watch it on tape, take the notes, read Philippians 4, meditate on these, and let the Holy Spirit do the teaching. We're going to enter into a time of communion now. And as we enter in, my encouragement to you is prepare your heart. You say, well, Carrie, how do I do that? The first thing is, you ask God to look into your heart and see if there's any wicked way in you that you might confess it. That you can come to this table with a pure heart and be able to worship God. This table is set by Jesus. He gave it as a model for us to remember His death, burial, and resurrection, His sacrifice, and all that is involved with it. The bread represents His body. Broken for us. Broke down, beat up, and hung on a cross. Why? Because He took the punishment for our sin. The cup represents His blood that was shed for us. The greatest sacrifice that one could ever give is laying down their life for a friend, and Jesus is our friend. This table is open to anybody who names the name of Christ. 
you're watching online, you'll want to, if you want to join us, you can get some bread and some juice. And as we enter a time of song, prepare your heart. And then when you're ready, come up and take the elements and then sit down and we'll take them all together at the end. Father, we pray that you would just minister to our hearts even now. Reveal any wicked way in us that we can come to this table with a clean hands and a pure heart. We confess our sin to you and you're, you're just to forgive us. And Lord, I pray that as a church we would grow in your grace. That you remove all the anxiety. That you would remove the divisions and, and, and that we would be unified in spirit and in truth. And that we would partner in ministry. And see the gospel go forward. God, I thank you for all you blessed us with. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are you burning, broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. Jesus is
God, it's an amazing thing to be able to think about how much you love us. That before the foundations of the world, in your sovereign mind, you knew our name. When we'd be born, our whole life. And you've set all of these things into motion. And you knew that we would fall. You knew that we would engaged in sin, and you provided the path for redemption through your Son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we honor you tonight with this bread and this cup. We want to say thank you. Thank you for not leaving us destined to an eternal damnation. We want to say thank you for forgiving us of all of our sins. We want to say thank you for giving us hope in the future. We want to say thank you for the provision of life and that much more. This free gift that you've given to us of, of love and hope and, and, and a future, it costs you everything. It costs you your life. But you gave it so that we might live. And then you rose again, giving us hope. Let's lift up this bread and ask God to bless it. God, we thank you for this bread because it reminds us of the body of your son, Jesus, the precious body that was marched through the streets and beaten and hung on a cross death and, and, and that, Jesus, you died and you were buried in a tomb. And three days later, you rose again, giving us hope. This bread reminds us of hope. That when we shed this 
body we live in, we have eternal life now. We thank you for all this bread means and we want to honor you by saying thank you in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. According to the law, God demanded that when sin entered in, it required death. And that death was imminent, and the only way to take care of that sin penalty was the shedding of blood. So for a time, he gave the, the sacrifice of animals, bulls and goats, for temporary atonement and covering. Until the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would shed his blood once and for all. And on that cross, he said, it is finished. Sin's penalty paid. Your debt and mine wiped out. And now we stand redeemed. Let's lift up this cup before the Lord. God, we thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. It reminds us of love and grace and mercy and compassion. Of gifts of eternal life and blessing. And of hope and of future and of cleanliness. God, when you see us now, you see us pure and purified. You see us whole and complete, without blemish, because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. This cup reminds us of that sacrifice. Lord Jesus, you lifted your glass and said, as often as you do this, remember me. We do so now. And out of obedience, we want to take this cup and honor you. And praise you for it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all drink from the cup. Thank you, Lord.
God, we thank you. We thank you that you you are here. You've taught us by your Spirit. And as we go out today, may we apply all the lessons that you've learned, both internally to bring us peace and externally to resolve conflict. And may the things that we say and do this week put a smile on your face. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.